this. Give you one more night, one more night to get this. We've had a million, million nights just like this. So let's get down, let's get down to business. Mama, please don't worry about me. Cause I'm about to let my heart speak. Hello and welcome to the Shmuel Tenant House podcast. My name is Shmuel Tenant House, and this is my podcast. So, first of all, I'm excited to say that we have a very, very important, significant hush of a guest today on the show. His name is Rabbi Label Miller. He is an outstanding man and uh, a member of the show that I go to, and he also is in charge of the South Florida Hever Kadisha and is a world-renowned Kashras expert. He does cruises, a uh, fascinating uh, person, and uh, please stick around. He's got a lot of great stories. Before we get to this interview that I had with Rabbi Miller, I must get a couple of things off of my chest. The first thing is that it has come to my attention that people uh, are falling asleep during my podcast. And I know this because these people who fall asleep during my podcast will eventually wake up from uh, the deep sleep that they fall into from my podcast. And they'll say, hey, I listened to your podcast and I fell asleep. And I don't want to call anybody out, not my father or my shver or my brother-in-law. No names have to be mentioned here. Uh, What I do want to say is uh, I have so few listeners as it is, and now the ones that are listening are falling asleep, but that's just the way the cookie crumbled. So so what I want to say is I'm really happy to be of service. In the the beginning, when I started this podcast, the idea was, hey, you know, my goal is to make from people laugh and talk about the from hustle, but I guess I'm going to update uh, what my objectives are and say that, uh, one, I want to make from Jewish people laugh, but if there's a, a from Jew who either suffers from insomnia or just uh, has a hard time falling asleep, this podcast will help you achieve potentially both of them. Now, for those of you who do fall asleep within the podcast, hopefully you're still up uh, right now. It's only two minutes in. And uh, I not only want to be resentful to the fact that you are napping and dozing off uh, during the work of art that I produce here on a weekly basis, but I actually want to lean into it and I want to encourage it. So uh, your eyelids are getting droopy right now and you're starting to feel sleepy. And I want you to be breathing in and out of that schnoz of yours so that you're Again, starting to get even more more tired and fatigued. And let's start counting sheep. Uh, one sheep, two sheep, uh, three sheep. Is that a black sheep? Somebody just left Yeshiva early, potentially is trimming his beard, listening to music during Sphira. Four sheep, five sheep, six sheep. Okay. Okay, so now that we got the, the nappers out of the way, let's, let's continue on with this agenda here. So I do want to say we have an incredible sponsor, and so let me do the ad read for this podcast. Thank you again for all the advertisers who have stepped up during these challenging economic times and who send wads of cash over to my house uh, in unmarked bills. Thank you very much. It's, it's, it's allowing me to live the lifestyle that my family and I need to live. Here we go. Do you love sheep? Are you in love with goats? Are you a fan of salad 
with a salty garnish. Welcome to the Fediverse, a new world brought to you from the company that created Facebook and then acquired Instagram and WhatsApp with aspirations to become a monopoly in the social media space. The Fediverse is the future. It's the future because actually nobody's here yet. The Fediverse also comes with a headset for $15,000. It will give you the opportunity to experience an artificial reality where everything you look at and experience uh, will be drizzled with feta cheese on whatever it is in your purview. Life is better with feta in the Fediverse. Visit feta.com forward slash the Shmuel Tenenos podcast to get early beta access to this fantastic platform. So ladies and gentlemen, here's the opportunity to get a beta for Feta from Meta. Carrying on, uh, I want to talk about something that I'm very passionate about, and it's definitely going to cause a sturm in shoals across the country. And, uh, you know, according to a study put out by the Orthodox Union, whenever there is a breakaway minion, 95% of the time it is orchestrated by people in shoal who have their own shtenders. You know what I'm talking about. There's a shoal going on. They build a beautiful building. Everybody has seats. There's enough sedurum, enough talesim. There's not enough bathrooms, and that's okay. People are hanging talesim, maybe going outside of the shoal when they need to. But there's a group of people who that's not good enough for them. They need to take matters into their own hand. They will come and bring their own shtender. There's no uh, uniform size. Uh, some people have ones that are very big, some small. You can buy them on the, the dark web. Uh, and Silk Road, back in the day, was selling these uh, illegal shulstenders. And uh, some of them have notes on it, like Shefa, uh, Shefa, Shefa, or you can borrow this uh, shtender. Now, if a person has his own shtender in shul, because, again, He's, he's not following the rules. He wants to do his own thing. And again, the reason why I will say that I think uh, why when there is a breakaway minion, it's, it's typically started by people who have their own shtenders is because you see they already are taking the initiative to build their own shul, but the first step in that process is they build kind of a mini shul in the form of their shtender. Now, if somebody is coming to show with their own shender or they're moving places because typically people who have shenders are also very sensitive to talking in show. You'll notice uh, ver very much uh, overlapping between these two personality traits. So sometimes if a person is moving from his spot, holding a shender, and then on the way, he's in a rush and he ends up knocking somebody over or banging into somebody, that is what we call a shender bender. So, uh, that's basically that, and I'm just going to leave it there. And if I ruffled feathers, uh, you can hide behind your stender, but I'm looking right at you. I wanted to share a story with you about uh, a friend of mine who's actually a cousin of mine right now. And I would say more cousin than friend or sometimes more friend than cousin. Uh, two years ago, during the height of COVID, he sent me a link to a podcast and said, hey, you should listen to this. This guy reminds me of you. Now, obviously, I did not listen to the link that he sent me because why would I listen to something that somebody sent me from the kindness of their heart? Uh, what am I, just going to start 
opening up links that people send me or paying attention to what people say. But I do want to share that uh, this actually planted a seed in my head at the time that, hey, wait a second, if I remind him of somebody who has a podcast, maybe I should do my own podcast. And it was about a year and a half later that I launched the Shmuel Tendals podcast. Uh, the reason why I'm sharing the story with you is to exemplify the importance of words in the most positive way and the power of them. That this was something uh, a person made an off, you know, an off comment to me. I don't know, even know what an off comment is, but he just sent this to me two years ago. I completely ignored him, but it has had a positive impact in my life. And so as we go about our daily life, and sometimes we think the things that we do are inconsequential or insignificant. We never know the long-term positive effects it has on other people. So thank you uh, for the one who sent me the link. Uh, I want to say that, uh, uh, do I have anything else to say? Yes. Uh, so a couple, two more things here, and then uh, we'll, we'll carry on with Rabbi Miller. The first thing is there's nothing that I enjoy more of planning and orchestrating with a friend who I haven't seen for a long time to go out for breakfast or for brunch or for dinner, somewhere cheap, obviously, hoping that he's going to pick up the tab uh, because he's just looking at the vehicle that I, I pulled in and he's, he's feeling compassionate. But nothing gets me more excited than I sit down and I order and the friend across me on the table says, no, thank you, I'm not eating because I am doing intermittent fasting. Wow. Wow. So that's where... This friendship is right now. Is this a real friendship or are we also having an intermittent friendship? Forget about the fact that it's so difficult to pronounce intermittent. But really, we're here now in the restaurant. It's kosher. We've suffered for thousands of years and now you're just going to watch me eat and then make me pick, pick up the tab because you have a valid excuse for not paying because you didn't eat. You think you're so sophisticated because you're doing intermittent fasting? Buddy, I was intermittent fasting intermittent for years. In fact, I still do every night from the hours of about 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, sometimes till 5.30 a.m. I conduct intermittent fasting. I don't eat a thing during those hours. So you think you're so hot. I ought to come and uh, give you a whack in the face. Not all the time, but intermittently, just to tell you what I feel about uh, this new health kick that you're on. Finally, I wanted to say, I uh, wanted to share an update that I have a new career. Uh, I became the night nurse in my home. I'm very excited to do it. Uh, we had a night nurse for months and months, but now I have assumed that role. Why did I assume that role? Well, simply because we completely ran out of money. Even from the pushkas that we had in our house and from the different couches that we had, we were also, any rebates that we had, we were taking them to Best Buy, getting the money from the rebates, doing all our Amazon returns. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we were paying the night nurse just with furniture. Uh, last week, we gave away, uh, we paid her with our uh, candlesticks. And so uh, at that time we said, hey, we have no furniture left. Best for me to step in and do the night nursing myself. I have to say, it's definitely the best paying gig I've had in, in years uh, because essentially I pay myself. Uh, in the morning, I take money from one pocket and put it 
into my other pocket. And it is a very good feeling. Now, how am I coping with getting very little sleep at night? Well, first of all, I'm seeing double, which is great. So when I log into my dank account, I'm like, hey, this is anemic, but that's what I normally would say. But now again, I'm seeing double, so very exciting. I also don't hear as well because again, I'm so fatigued, my, my ears, and my earlobes, everybody there in that region from my neck above is just extremely exhausted. And then uh, one thing I will say is uh, when the babies do wake me up uh, fast and furious and frequently uh, at a nightly basis, uh, I do spend copious amount of times uh, entertaining myself by Googling terms like uh, where to get a vasectomy in Hallandale Beach or... Uh, Groupon vasectomy, uh, because uh, that's what I'm thinking about uh, every 15 minutes between the hours of 12 to 5 a.m. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy the interview with Rabbi Label Miller. I promised you in the past that we were going to have VIP guests on the show, and today I deliver. Here with me in my pseudo studio is Rabbi Label Miller. Rabbi Label Miller, for those of you who don't know, and my intro is probably not doing justice, uh, Rabbi Miller is the director of one of the largest, maybe the largest. Uh, in South Florida. In South say. Florida, uh, Jewish funeral oh, homes. Oh, the company, the company is actually the largest funeral operator, Service Corporation International, the largest funeral operator in, in the world. I happen to be the ritual director for this market in South Florida. Okay. And so you run the Hever Kedisha. The Hever Kedisha is a not separate nonprofit organization, which is run through Chabad, which we service all the traditional cases, needs like Tahar or Shomer, things like that. That's, that's a that's a side hustle. It, that is the main that's the main thing that I do. Okay, for the company, and for the the nonprofit is administrated by me and Chabad House in uh, Aventura, but the organization is a nonprofit organization. We service the uh, funeral home, and then help when people can't afford funerals and need services to make sure everything is done. Got it. Uh, in addition, uh, Rabbi Label Miller is a fascinating human being. I tell him you have so many stories, and he says that's because I'm much older than you are. And he's also the host of Miller Time in our show on Shabbos, going on for many years. Also, just a little speech at the Kiddush. Okay, <laughs> it's not it's not broadcasted. Uh, the other thing is. Uh, Rabbi Miller is also a world-renowned kashrus expert. What he does with his spare time, and uh, you could check that out at resortkosher.com. Not yes, to be confused with kosherfuneral.com, yes, which is the his two funeral. Things I do. Obviously, the resort work I do is only usually like a week a month or something like that, and it's um, sometimes related to what I do at the funeral home because I, and for the last uh, 25 years. I service conferences for insurance agents that keep kosher. That's like the primary thing I do. And then holiday programs, which I'd have to be off for the holidays anyhow. So I'm, you know, whether it be Sukkot in the Bahamas or more recently uh, over the years for Pesach on the Mountain, which is in Whistler, and then more recently in Park City and Vail. Okay, cool. Where are you going this year Vail, Pesach? Vail, Vail, with the Pesach on the Mountain program. I'm not a skier, so it's a, it makes me a good Ravamaksha. I'm in the kitchen. Got it. Okay. Do you want to take me and my family just to have yeah, a round? Certainly. I'm okay. sure you can pull the money together. You make so much money in this podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so 
Uh, with that background out of the way, first of all, thank you for being here. And uh, I wanted to know if somebody wants to get into Hever Kaddish or funerals, you know, my question is what school should he go to? Or better yet, you know, what's your background? How did you land I, into such a... Okay, I'll tell you, there's no school for Hever Kaddish. It's a volunteer organization. Um, we accept volunteers from religious uh, members of the community. We're basically servicing their own um, people from the community, especially in the Latin communities in Venezuela and Colombia. Many people were members of the Hever Kedisha just to make sure that everything was done within the community. We believe that uh, to honor the dead, the most important thing is the people who are involved are handling it as a, a loving act and a mitzvah. Um, personally, how I got involved is sort of crazy because I was a yeshiva student in South Beach and uh, I had a, a background that was a secular background and uh, I had um, gone to every photography course they ever had in, when I was in college, including I took police science photography at Miami-Dade Community College before I went to University of Miami. This was before the iPhone? As well before the iPhone. Okay. And I, I took a, it was a very serious photography course and I got a certificate and I went to see my beach and said, I need a job, I'm in college. And uh, they said, well, we don't need anybody from the publicity department, though I eventually did become the work for the mayor of Miami Beach, Chuck Hall is his publicity photographer while I was in college. But uh, what happened was the only job they had open at the time was to help in police photography department. So I spent some time taking pictures of crime scenes and accidents. So it didn't really, the gore became sort of normal. And when I was in yeshiva, unfortunately, somebody passed away uh, in a motorcycle accident. We were trying to get him to come to yeshiva. And Rabbi Korf, the administrator of Chabad down here, the head shliach, he said, uh, we need some bachram to go and help with this tahar. We want our people to handle this guy. And everybody was like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. The gore doesn't bother me, but I felt I wasn't enough of a year Shemayim. I was still like just becoming Chabad. And uh, he said, don't worry. When you go through those doors, you'll become a year Shemayim. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Also, I, I've <coughs> failed to mention, label Rabbi Miller has shared with me that he also, you got a purple heart in the Israeli army? Oh, I got That's a long story. I don't really want me to tell you that. I, I didn't get a purple heart. What happened? You want the whole story? You could say the short version. The short I think version. It, I think it's worth sharing. Okay. The short version is that I, I, after I went to Yeshiva in Miami Beach, I went to Far Chabad to Yeshiva and uh, eventually wanted to become a citizen. And you have to do army duty. I was one of that older group that's called Shlav Bet, which Shlav Bet means you've already gotten to an age they really don't want you in the army, but they want you to fulfill your obligation. So I went to Zikim, which is a very serious army base. And one of the, I was a goof off, was like basically F troop. And uh, I had a shock, big shock. Big shock, yeah. <laughs> so one of my friends uh, had a um, connection through family with a vodka factory. So I smuggled in a case of vodka into the army base. And uh, we, one cold night, were walking back and forth on the bunker. And uh, it was cold. And so me and my friend, what we did was I filled my canteen with vodka, a little bit of lemon juice. And uh, I would say it's mostly vodka. And we, whenever we passed each other walking on this bunker in the middle of the night, we took a little swig. Listen, we didn't get, I'm connected to Chabad. I didn't get drunk. <laughs> okay. But I felt warmer. Like a presidential kiddish. Didn't bother me. Didn't bother me. Okay. And when we were um, done, we all got to bed, you know, five in the morning or something. All of a sudden, alarms. We have a uh, inspection, a special inspection. Everybody jumped up. We lined up, and they go on. One of the things they do is they shake your canteen to see if it's full. So I got nervous about that. So I'd filled my canteen with a little bit of water so it would be full when they shook it. 
And they walk by and they eventually they shake my canteen. My friend is laughing because he knows what's in the canteen. And then the, this, the sergeant goes, okay, we're doing a forced march into the desert now. Everybody line up. And it's near the Gaza Strip. It really is desert. Were you hungover, by the way, at the time? I was... Okay. okay. Like I said, I wasn't... Uh, you had been through college, so this was... I, in University of Miami, I competed in, 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 in beer drinking contests. <laughs> I, I could actually later ask me the story about how we got beer for free at the University of Miami. Okay. <laughs> but the, um, we were um, marching in the desert, and then they said, stop, everybody drink. And so, you know, I knew what I have in my canteen, so I just took a little sip. He goes, Miller, you drink. And I said, I'm from Miami, it's not so... Not so hot today. I'm okay. I don't need to. No, drink. You have to drink. And so I took another sip. He goes, no. And then he said, you want to make an example of me? He said, take the canteen, drink the whole canteen, and when it's empty, hold it over your head. And my friend was hysterical at this point. So I did it. Probably to say, if you know the size of a canteen, it was 75% vodka. So I lasted for a few more steps after that. And then I fell flat on my face in the desert. They called in an emergency evac. They thought I had, had heat exhaustion. The, my friend told me that the sergeant said, see what happens when you don't drink. <laughs> and uh, I went to the hospital and they said, you know, heat exhaustion, if you had been in active duty in, in the battlefield, you would have gotten a Purple Heart, or the Israeli equivalent for going to the, well, I got some time off. It was nice in the hospital. And whatever so they that's <laughs> how you almost got a Purple Heart. Almost got a Purple Heart. Okay, um, so because you do funeral work most of the time. And then, you know, when you have the free time, you're able to do Ashkacha work. I'm curious if the lines of work ever cross over. Well, we try to make that never happen from the food. Okay. I actually have a joke I just heard. It's sort of an off-color joke. Do you want to hear it? Please. Okay, there was um, a couple that they hardly ever had guests. They were on the edge of town. And one day a traveling uh, sort of, you know, the man without any family, whatever, stops by their house and says, I need a place to stay. I'm hungry. They didn't really have anything to give them except an old piece of fish. Probably went back to the time of Noah, right? So they fed him the piece of fish. What else? They fed him. He right away got sick. And he got so sick they had to take him to a hospital. They took him to the hospital. When he got to the hospital, they stayed with him if they felt responsible. They stayed with him and they tried to nurse him. Cornish tell from the guy. The guy died. So they called the Heber Kedisha. Echavridisha came in, they took the body, they said, we'll take responsibility for the burial, and they actually took responsibility for this guy to have a proper Jewish funeral. And the, the wife was distraught. She said, it's terrible, terrible. All your response was, don't feel bad. Look at this. From one piece of fish, you got three mitzvahs. Nachasorachim, birchacholim, and levias ames. The visiting of the, of taking care of a visitor, visiting the sick, and doing a kosher burial. What's better than that for one piece of fish? Nice. <laughs> we don't. We try to make never that that happens in, in any of the programs I'm involved with. One time, I mean, this always stories. I mean, I one one time I was done with a program in Arizona, and I took a couple of days off, and we were were um, traveling with my wife, who always I take with me whenever I go anywhere. By the way, why is that? It's common sense. <laughs> she wouldn't let me leave her behind. <laughs> okay. I don't know. <laughs> no, because I, it's, if you go in these things, if you aren't enjoying yourself and you're not having, so to speak, a good experience, I'm not doing it so much for the money. I don't get paid that much to do these programs. And a lot of the money goes into the Hebergadisha Charity Fund anyhow. Um, I do it mostly just to uh, make them treat me better also. <laughs> okay. You know, because you have a wife, they have to give you a room, you have to stay in the hotel, they have to treat you like a man. They can't treat you like a bucker. 
Right. So that's one reason. But also it's Genius just a, move, by the way. Yeah. What a hack. I, I, I lose a lot of business from it, but I'm not looking for business, so it doesn't matter. Sure. So I remember one time I'm going um, down the Grand Canyon on, on a donkey, a jackass. And uh, the jackass was pretty upset because when I got to the— Why are you looking at me when you say jackass? The, when I got to the jackass weighing station, you're only supposed to be 114, two, 214 pounds to get on the jackass going down the side. So it was late, so he didn't have a chance to weigh me. He said, 214? I said, yeah, 214. I was probably about 240 at the time. And so all the way down the mountain, the jackass is looking back at me going, 214, my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Very unhappy. I got a telephone call back then. I had cell phones, right? So I got a telephone call. So-and-so passed away. We need to know who's going to pick up the body. When's the funeral? What cemetery? And I'm on the literally on the back of a jackass going down the Grand Canyon, and I made a full funeral arrangement. So sometimes things mix, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. But one time I, I remember early days when cell phones weren't so common. I used to have a beeper system. I had a beeper, and I have a few guys who work for me that cover the removals and like that. And these guys uh, will go when I tell them to pick up the remains to make sure Shomer Shabbos goes to the house. So in Aventura, the, somebody passed away. I don't, back then, I don't know if it was always required that the police came. If you had a doctor who was willing to sign, you didn't necessarily have to notify the police. It might even be before incorporation. I don't remember. But it was time before cell phones, for sure. Um, I had a cell phone in the car, but only a beeper on me. It was in Disney World, at doing a conference for MetLife Insurance. And, you know, life insurance is like sort of related business. So I always like to go to those conferences and help them with the kosher for the kosher workers. And I was- Also a great place to get referrals for the funeral business. I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, the insurance industry, yes. of course, yes. But the, uh, hopefully uh, they, they like it when the people don't die when they have life insurance. You That's know. true. <laughs> Anyhow, so these guys are handling the big term life and policies for corporate uh, executives. That's why they get these great honors of going to a place like Disney World and be everything being paid for by the company. So I'm there, and there was a line at, this, uh, at the telephone, the payphone. I got a beep that somebody had passed away. So I'm, I'm, I'm at the, trying to get on the line. I eventually get to the phone. There's still people on both sides of me. It's very crowded. It's somebody behind me. And I, when I'm working in the Kashrut, I don't dress necessarily with a white shirt and black hat. I was dressed down a little. It was still a relatively formal event. So I was wearing a tan suit, a, um, a brown shirt, and a tan tie, and a tan hat. I sort of like almost mafia looking, you know. And uh, I um, I got on the phone. And I was, the guy was saying, I don't know what to do. We're trying to call the doctor, but the doctor's not answering the phone. And the, when the, pol- the police are probably going to have to come, and the police then they'll take them to the medical examiner if they can. So I, I heard this, and so I said, to very loud on the phone because it was noisy, to my this worker, I said, I don't care what it takes. Get that body out of there before the police show up. All of a sudden, there was no line anymore around me. Everybody sort of like walked away. <laughs> good way to get on rides very, very quickly to make some of those calls. Um, I'm curious, um, when is the busiest season? Because I do know that there there are busier seasons than others. I don't know if that's really true anymore. I did, it used to be here in in, in um, Florida that nobody was allowed to take a vacation in the funeral homes. None of the staff was allowed to take vacations, including myself, in that peak tourist season, November till after January. Because okay. now it's year round. It's really it's steady it's not, business, it's steady. steady flow, <laughs> steady flow of cadavers coming through. It's not listen between me and you. I I hope always 
that I have a day like today where I didn't have to deal with anybody, okay? The only thing I did today— When you say anybody, you mean anybody. Yeah, whatever, yes. <laughs> so I, I, today I spent my day um, stopping in at the Pritikin Resort at the Trump Country Club and making sure the Mishkiach was taking care of the people on a diet program. That's, that's a good day for me. On the phone, I did a little bit of work helping people, but thank God it was not a— I a, always thought, like, Yumtif, like, people would live and then pass away after Yumtif. You know, I, I, I do have a belief— that, that people hold on for momentous occasions, right? They hold on to the kids who are going to come down. This is mostly true with elderly people, but they're, they hold on. They're already terminal or in hospice, whatever. They, they hold on. Uh, the grandkids are going to come for, for Rosh Hashanah. It's only another day. I will tell you one thing that happened once. I, I one time got a call, and this is work-related, right? I one time got a call immediately after Yom Kippur. I mean, like the minute I could answer the phone after Yom Kippur. And it was a call for, to go up to Deerfield Beach where we had a chapel, Menorah Chapel there. And uh, they were specific, the operator from the service was waiting to call me to the moment after. said, the family is insisting they want you to come. You have to come to the house. This gentleman just died. You, you. I have workers, but they were specifically me. So it really says, yeah, the whole time he said that you would be coming, you would be coming. And I called the family. He says, yeah, yeah there, our father was saying you would be coming, you would be coming. So I, said, oh, so I went. I got a, got a vehicle. I put a stretcher and I went, I went and I, I picked up the remains. I said, really, I mean, I, I know this guy. Why was specifically me? He said the whole time as Yom Kippur was going out, he said, don't worry. And they had a bed in the living room. And all the families gathered around, very beautiful, as this man was passing. And they said, um, the Mishkiach is coming. The Mishkiach is coming. Don't worry. The Mishkiach will come. Don't worry about me. But uh, Mishkiach is I said, you sure he said Mishkiach? Maybe he said Mishkiach. And they said, oh, that's what he meant. And how did they even know they that knew you I, they, They've been on my Pesach programs. Got it. Okay. So there is – that's another overlap. Yeah, that's, that's – yeah, Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been doing Pesach now consistently – um, I don't know, 25, maybe maybe more years. I mean, I started off doing Pesach in in in, um, in uh, Cancun, and then we did Puerto Rico, and we did uh, Aruba, and more recently in the ski programs. I went from one to the other. <laughs> Are you allowed to talk about um, that private program you did for the Kushners, or that's a? Well, I you know I didn't really do it. What happens was the Kushners, uh, the entire family, including Ivanka, were were with us at the Pesach on the Mountain program in Whistler. And uh, they, after, obviously, the first year of presidency, they wanted a little more privacy. So they were going to go to an undisclosed location in Wyoming, and uh, which is like a big dude ranch that they take over the whole place, very exclusive. And uh, they asked me to go. I couldn't go. So I, I sent um, people, including one of your office <laughs> managers here in this building we're renting, and uh, they went and covered it. And then every year they call me. I've been trying to help them always with the food order and the the guys who will work there. I mean, they seem to be happy there. And I just can't get, I'm, I'm a pretty loyal guy. If I start working with, I was working for the last few years with the OK and, and Pesach on the Mountain, uh, I'm the, I get other people calling me all the time, why don't you come for this program, why don't you come for that program? I, I try to, I'm not looking at, this is a, uh, my main career, so it's, I try to be loyal to the people that hire me. Is Ivanka like blowing up your phone saying, is this Gabrachs? Is that Gabrachs? No? You know, saying she was very, very nice. She was like quiet and she went and benched candles with her kids and everything else. And her, her mother in law was a wonderful lady. I, they were very nice, very edel people. Were you there when they were in Whistler? Because my friend was there when they were I, there. That's, too. When, that's when I met them, yes. Got it, okay.
Okay, because that was separate from the private Wyoming. Yeah, that was the first time. Okay, got it. Okay, they, they did have a private there. room. They did have a private room, but they I'm came sure. to the regular buffet. Was the Secret Service there with them? Oh my God. You know, I'm a, I, I like to smoke cigars, right? So I always, when I'm doing a program, I bring a few hundred cigars. And so they had like eight Secret Service guys who like cigars. So we'd always sit outside the rooms, you know, by the bonfire smoking cigars. When they went down the side of the mountain, which we had a barbecue halfway down the mountain, you know, she'd, she'd come down. She'd have like two Secret Service agents skiing on the side of her, one in back, you know, one in front and a girl so she could go with her to the bathroom. So, yeah, they were very, I mean, anybody involved in the presidential family is obviously going to have a lot of, a lot of that. Was this when they were president already or, or Yeah, yeah, yet? the first year. Wow. And uh, um, the... Did they stay the whole thing or just the first days? Um, they stayed the whole Pesach, yeah, for Including sure. Including Yeah, yeah. And then when they went to the undisclosed location the first year, uh, I'm, they actually flew down to the Trump jet, which I think made it a little less undisclosed than, than normal, but... <laughs> wow. Um, so, next question. And I see calls are coming in. Could be people are dropping like flies now during this interview. So <laughs> No, it's okay. I'm fine. So, uh, next question. I'm curious, with the, the funeral industry, did you, because of COVID, have supply chain issues? Or does that You know, people impact? really jumped in to help. I mean, uh, I, would have had a, I would have had a lot of issues. Um, but uh, there's a, a Rabbi Kaplan, in, uh, Mindy Kaplan in, in um, Fort Lauderdale that he actually made some contact connections for me. Um, there's another um, uh, BioFlex gloves that they donated a huge amount of, uh, of gloves, not only for me, but people in the community. People really stepped up to bat during COVID. And we continued to do Taharas throughout the, uh, the, whole, the whole height of it. Even though we had to wear special spacesuits and stuff in the beginning, we never stopped uh, work. And it was double the, uh, the normal business, let's just say. It was twice as many cases we normally had. Though I will say that most of the people who were the victims of COVID, um, it's, they had some other weakness in their body that made it that they became terminal. It wasn't like I had 20-year-old guys, God forbid, coming in with COVID. It was elderly people, people with heart conditions, overweight people in general. I didn't have so many cases of people just, I know New York, it got crazy. It didn't get that crazy down here. Got it, but I'm sure there were some cases. Oh, there were, there was, you know, there was, it was, there was a lot of, a lot of very tragic cases. It was a very sad time, and obviously, here comes the interesting thing: nobody was going on, um, on programs. I was, I, I normally do at least one or two cruises a year, or, or uh, um, conferences. They were all canceled, so I really was able to. I don't, I don't want to say, you know, Hashem, but I was able to concentrate on that during the highest period of pressure. What is the best kosher cruise out there, in your opinion? I don't know. I don't want to say because I've worked, I've worked for Kosher Rica. Okay. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm friends with uh, the management at... Uh, the one of the best cruises, yep. I'll tell you the best cruise. Best cruise is the one where somebody hires me privately just for like 20 people to take them on a very uh, expensive, smaller boat and then doesn't have any budget. That's my best cruise. What's the cruise. most exotic location you've been to like that? Cruises? Yep. I, I, I love that um, cruise of the, uh, to Dubrovnik and, and going from Venice up the, into the, the whole area and Dubrovnik and, and just beautiful there the whole you know that whole in general the Mediterranean is my favorite I mean I've done things 
everywhere, Alaska. And I've never done anything. And it's funny, for some reason, nobody ever hired me to go to uh, Australia. They seem to just find a local rabbi. <laughs> but everything in the Mediterranean, I love just the, the Malfi Coast. It's gorgeous. Did you work for my... To Miami Highlight, did I? Am I? Yeah, but up? you know, you know, almost doesn't pay to talk about Miami Highlight. I don't think anybody remembers it anymore. I remember Miami Highlight. Yeah, but you're you're getting old. Okay. In general, I what happened was it's a strange story, but uh, I, there was a guy I mentioned his name, H.P. Rico, um, that he was uh, brought down from Boston. He had formerly been involved in in investigating organized crime for the Boston FBI. And he was brought down um, to take over as manager of World High Light Corporation when it was sold from the Jewish owner, Buddy Berenson, to this group. Was Buddy Berenson uh, mafia-related? No, Buddy Berenson was the original owners. Oh, back. Okay. His family was the original owners back to the 50 years before in Miami. And what happened was this guy was very, you know, was, I'd met him through, I was friends, not dating his daughter, uh, but I had met him a couple times, and he liked me very much. He tried to hire me. He said, we want to hire you as an uh, uh, announcer. And even though I'd done radio work. And, and TV. Yeah, and TV. But I'd done radio work in college um, and studied radio and TV. I didn't really want to be an announcer because that's like, you know, announcing a highlight game is like announcing a dog race or a horse race. It's very fast-paced, and it's not what I wanted to do. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a public relations person. So this guy goes, okay, you're the public relations person, like that. There was a corporate manager, and I became like the guy in charge of Fort Pierce Highlight in Miami under him, right? And um, everything was fine. I worked there for a few years, and then I got doubled my salary to go up to Newport, Rhode Island, and open the Newport Highlight. And then uh, I had this, like, cathartic moment of uh, realizing that uh, the only synagogue there was Orthodox, the Toro Synagogue, and uh, realizing that my level of Yiddishkeit, that I'd grown up conservative, wasn't real really the level of Yiddishkeit I should be. And uh, I wanted to become more, more from. And eventually, I just, it, the whole highlight thing fell apart for different reasons. I found out later, one of the reasons was they found out that Whitey Bulger um, from the mafia in, in Baltimore had the FBI in his pocket. And he, he gave his reward jobs to these guys when they retired to run the highlight. And they were all Crooked. <laughs> and so thank God I got out of it before it ever happened. Is Highlight still around in general? Very, very um, limited. It's still there. It's now they changed the rules that dogs and horses and highlights don't have to be linked to make a casino. So as soon as they did that day one, they closed the highlights and the dog tracks. Now they do exhibition games on the weekend sometimes. Okay. We have five minutes left. I'm going wow. to be respectful for your time. Um, <laughs> I told you, Ravella, you can do this for hours uh, naturally. I had so many jokes, too. First of all, any, jo any joke you want, please insert them. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. I'm curious, like, um, any ghost stories? No. Or paranormal? No, no. Listen, if we believed in ghosts, okay, let's just say I believe that in the funeral home there at night, there's six bodies or something, and there's such a thing as ghosts. These are all people I wouldn't be afraid of in my life. I'm afraid of them when they don't have a body. We believe the soul is present. We believe we should be there comforting it, reading to him, being holy. I, but I, every, every nisham, every person has inside of them a little 
piece of God, a holy spark. When you leave the physical body, that's all that's left is this holy spark. So I'm have not afraid of holy sparks. Have any employees ever said, hey, there's a ghost or there I've had, I've had, I, the old building in Deerfield Beach used to have a very bad air conditioning system. It'd make, it'd make uh, all sorts of creaks and cracks and things like that. And I had a showmarine who ran out, in the, new guys who ran out in the middle of the night, I'm not working here, I'm afraid, they ran out, but not in general. And in general, I try to um, make sure that my people are basically normal and before we were corporate, I used to play tricks on them sometimes, like, you know, have somebody go under a sheet in the stretcher and say, tag this guy, put him in the cooler, and then grab his ankle, you know, <laughs> things like that, just to test him out before we hired them. Hazen. <laughs> um, now, uh, let, uh, maybe could be even my last question, which is both, well, the funeral for sure, and then also the Shkocha stuff are pretty intense lines of work. Yes and no. I mean, it all depends on your on your nature. I, I, I want you to know, here comes a funny thing. I have a hard time going fishing. For me to take the hook out of the mouth of the, the fish, it, I see it suffering. You know what I'm saying? For me to go and to be present to assist that somebody should have an autopsy more respectfully done. I mean, I handled most of the kids from Parkland. I handled almost all the Jewish bodies from the collapse of the towers. They're in the worst situation that can possibly happen. Everything I do is making their situation better. Malim Bakodish, I'm making the situation better. So it, me, I find it uplifting, you know? And as far as the Kashrut goes, you have to realize um, that I'm in charge, you know, to make sure that the food stays kosher. So as long as things go smoothly in the kitchen, it's not high pressured. And I try to do certain things after being this almost 30 years, I do certain things to make sure it stays that way. For example, I remember that uh, when I first started doing the cruises, they were had these little milk um, um, non-dairy creamers. And there's kosher ones and there's non-kosher ones, as you know, right? So their custom was always to put them face down on the trays, right? Sure. And so it looked nicer on the little tray. I said, you can't do that. I have to be able to walk by and see it from the other side of the room. A simple thing like that stops them putting out the wrong things. Uh, the vinegar bottles. I said, you can't put out your vinegar bottle. You have to put one of these little vinegar bottles that still says kosher vinegar. So if, you're, if you know what you're doing, you are less likely to get into trouble in kashrut. Uh, maybe last question. Uh, cognac. Or sherry casks. Is this a long topic, or like how very do you long topic? <laughs> okay. And you can Google a different it. Different time. You can Google it. What I, I this is what I, I've always tried to do in Kashrut. I personally am not the head rabbi of anybody but Rabbi Miller. Okay. So when people tell me, oh, this, this, this is this, I tell them, here, here's a list. Go on the list. Some lists, like the based in of London list, used to be much more liberal. Some lists are very strict. I say, go on the list. It's not my thing. If you're, this is a personal thing. If somebody wants to have sherry cast at home, I have a problem. I just say, if, if it's not on the kosher list, we can't use it in a program. If I have a private client, it's something else. Got it. Okay. Thank you, Rabbi Miller, for coming here today, answering my questions. I think I'll have to come back to do the joke uh, version. To, you, to, well, you can, if, first of all, any, any parting <laughs> words, any parting stories? No, I none of my jokes are only 30 seconds long, so let's, let's leave it. Okay, thank you very much.